Hey, brothers. Welcome to the Men of Valor podcast. My name is Casey McCauley, and we're so excited to start a new study in the Sermon on the Mount. Man, what an amazing message. It's Jesus' teaching, the greatest sermon ever preached to the world, for his people, to us. In this podcast, we're going to cover week one of our workbook, which covers Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. We'll consider an introduction and cover the first four Beatitudes. Here at Harvest, we want to study God's Word in community, to encourage others and to be encouraged ourselves, to do life together, just as Jesus' disciples did. And one way we do that is through Harvest Groups. If you're not part of a Harvest Group, you can pause this podcast right now and go to harvest.church groups. No, seriously, go ahead and do that. We have groups for men, women, co-ed, and couples. You know, there are a lot of things I can waste my time doing, but being part of a small group isn't one of them. And for those listening who are already part of a group, you already know the blessing of being with the brothers. I want to encourage you as we begin this study. Envision how Jesus' disciples, his group of followers, originally heard this message and how they responded to it. After the last verse of the sermon, it's described in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So what was the reaction from Jesus's original audience? Astonishment, amazement. Wow. We must ask, do we have that kind of reaction? How are we hearing and how are we reacting to that same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount? Brothers, let's not treat this as just the next Bible study we're going through. Maybe you're really familiar with the passage already, but don't just go through the motions. Let's hear afresh the words of Jesus, and may the same be true of us as the original audience, to see the authority of Jesus and to be astonished at his teaching. Try to envision how that must have been. Remember how the disciples followed Jesus together. Imagine the crowds as they heard him after his teaching. Think of the conversations they must have had, the questions they must have asked. Think of the accountability it inspired, the encouragement it gave, the new vision of life in the kingdom of God. This is the official manifesto of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amazing. What a scene. When we get to heaven, I hope to see the video archive of this sermon. But nevertheless, we can't watch it, but we can hear it. We have Jesus's words to us. So brothers, let us hear Jesus's teaching to us. And let's get right into it. Of course, you notice that this sermon is not isolated. It's chapters five through seven in Matthew's gospel. Certainly it stands alone and it can be studied on its own. After all, it's the most famous and powerful sermon ever given. But it's also part of a larger story. The gospel writer just doesn't randomly insert this sermon towards the beginning of his gospel. He's stringing together an argument and a portrayal of Jesus as the true king and life in the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is actually the first of five larger teachings in the gospel of Matthew. The next is the mission and witness discourse of chapter 10, the parables of the kingdom in chapters 13, the church discourse in chapter 18, and the judgment discourse in chapters 23 to 25. We get a clue of these natural breaks throughout the gospel at the conclusion of the teachings with the repetitive statement, quote, and it happened when Jesus had finished. In other words, class is dismissed. The first sermon of chapters 5 to 7 and the last sermon of chapters 23 to 25 are the bookends of this teaching both showing that there's two ways to live. 
Life in the kingdom or life apart from Christ? Building your life on the rock or on the sand? Or those who are wise or wicked and foolish? Those who are good or bad servants? And it's summarized by the difference of the sheep and the goats. It's the blessed beatitudes of chapter 5 contrasted by the sevenfold woes of chapter 23. More specifically, chapters 5 through 7 fit in the more immediate context of Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, through chapter 9, verse 38. And this book ends this entire section describing how Jesus proclaimed, quote, the gospel of the kingdom. That's what this entire section is about in which the Sermon on the Mount is located. And it's displayed through Jesus' teaching, his healing, and his calling to discipleship. Of course, the Sermon on the Mount is the epitome of his teaching. And in the context of this larger section, it shows us that it's all about what it means to live in the coming kingdom of God. Now, notice the setting. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. There it is. Jesus is giving his authoritative teaching on the mountain. Thus saith Christ the Lord. Does this sound familiar at all? The divine revelation of God from the mountain. So think way, way back. What would the Jewish audience have thought of when they saw this? It takes us back to God giving the law, God's commandments from none other than Mount Sinai. This was such a huge moment in Israel's history. But what do we see now? Now, on this mountain, it's through Jesus the Messiah that God is speaking just as he did at Sinai. What's really fascinating is how this is presented in Matthew's gospel, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. There are echoes of the Exodus, ripples of redemption, showing how Jesus is the true and greater Moses. Consider the parallels and how the Exodus story is depicted in Jesus' life in the beginning of Matthew, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. First, consider Jesus' birth in Matthew 2. Like Israel, Jesus temporarily goes down to Egypt, escapes the death threats of a dictator who wants to kill the sons of Israel, and then comes out of Egypt, thus fulfilling Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I have called my son. Next, Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, which parallels the journey of Israel through the waters of the Red Sea, and this is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Next, Jesus' wilderness temptation in Matthew 4. After going through the water, Jesus immediately enters the wilderness to encounter temptation for 40 days, which of course is similar to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. But... Unlike Israel, Jesus is obedient and victorious to the same temptations that Israel faced, that of disobedience, testing God, and idolatry. And Jesus said, it is written. Next, we see Jesus' choosing of disciples in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus chooses 12 disciples, reflective of the 12 tribes of Israel, as he forms a new people of God. And finally, here we are. We arrive at Matthew chapter 5. As God delivered the law from Mount Sinai, Jesus speaks about the law, the teaching, the proclaiming of the kingdom of God from a mountaintop. It's the Sermon on the Mount. As John 1 says, Jesus Christ, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word for dwelt, 
tabernacled among us, the presence of God, God in the flesh dwelling on a mountain, delivering his commands of his coming kingdom. Amazing. And ultimately, Jesus does what Israel and what we could never do. He lived a perfect and a righteous life. Then he went to a cross and died for our sin, and he rose again in victory. Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills all that God promised in the Old Testament. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so before we get to all the parts in the Sermon on the Mount as to how we should live, first and foremost, we see a picture of who Christ is. No wonder that they were astonished at his authority and his teaching. So as you can see, there's a lot of amazing context surrounding this sermon, and it leads to such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. I hope you can see how the suspense is building. What's Jesus going to talk about? How does he do it? Well, as forms of communication or sermons often do, there's a normal structure of introduction. There's an introduction in chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, followed by the body of the message in chapter 5, verse 17, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12. This section begins and ends with the words, the law and the prophets. And then finally, the conclusion is seen in chapter 7, verses 13 to 27, which of course concludes with a natural decision and a response. So how does Jesus start this sermon? What are the first words that you immediately notice as you read? Of course, as he begins, Jesus gets right to it and you hear the word blessed or blessed nine times. We know them as the Beatitudes. Of course, this should be your attitude, but the word comes from the Latin, which means happy or blissful, fortunate or flourishing. The Greek word for blessed has been translated as happy, fortunate, how honorable, congratulations, wonderful news, privileged, and oh, the happiness. I really like commentator Jonathan Pennington's description of the word, describing it as, quote, flourishing. The blessed life, the happy life, is one of human flourishing by God's design. And that human flourishing can't truly happen apart from a relationship with God. The list of Beatitudes is often organized in two sections. The first four deal with our relationship with God, and the second four deal with our relationship to others. In week one of our lesson, we're briefly considering the first four Beatitudes, focusing on our relationship with God. So let's read them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, Jesus speaking. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These first four Beatitudes reveal what the blessed life is like, and that it's found in realizing our great need for God. If we try to live life apart from God, we are not living according to our created design. What were we designed to do? It's to know God, to enjoy God, to glorify God. As our mission statement at Harvest says, it's to know God and to make him known. When we don't do this, we are living against the grain of our design, which, hey, you'll get a splinter. It's swimming upstream. That sounds exhausting. It's putting water in your gas tank. You ain't going nowhere. These descriptions are a picture of humility and dependence upon God. The creation looking to the creator, 
Sinners looking to a savior, the lost being found, the guilty being forgiven. First, we see that it is the poor in spirit who are blessed or who are happy or who truly flourish. This refers to our realization of sin. It's poverty of spirit, not financially, but morally or spiritually. We are spiritually bankrupt. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who acknowledge their need, well, for the king that they aren't their own rulers, but they submit to his lordship, to his kingship. Next, those who mourn are those who are blessed. This does not refer to sadness or grief in general, but refers to rather a remorse or weeping over our own sin, to recognize our sin and to have repentance and remorse for it. We all point out sin in other people's lives, but we are to first mourn over our own sin. And when we realize the bad news that we're sinners who deserve God's judgment, we repent and we turn to Christ and we experience the good news that we are comforted by the forgiveness of Jesus. We experience the bitterness of sin, yes, but it is then overwhelmed by the sweetness of the Savior. Then we come to the meek. That's who's blessed. Of course, this is not weakness, rather meekness, which is strength under control. And having meekness towards God is that of submission, humility, and contentment. And when we find our strength in Christ, we will live on earth according to his design purposes in dependence upon God. You know, God does not help those who help themselves. No, he helps those who humble themselves. This is to show that God is, well, God in our lives. And as children of God, we are co-heirs with Christ of the whole earth. The meek inherit the earth because we are with Christ, who is the ultimate example of meekness, as we see in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And finally, the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This shows what we live for and what we long for. It's the appetite of our souls. It's not a hunger or thirst for sin. No, that's what we did as unbelievers, only to realize that we were left with more hunger and more thirst, malnourished and dehydrated. But when we truly seek right living, righteousness by God's way of life, oh, it's then that we are satisfied. You know, as we hear these words, blessed, what immediately comes to mind? Today in our culture, when we hear the word blessed, we usually associate it with Christianity because, well, it's a Bible word. When you ask a stranger, hey, how's it going? And they say, I'm blessed. You have that moment where you pause and look at them like, are you a Christian? You, see, you know, Christians, we can post on social media with a happy update or a good thing and say, hashtag blessed. I had a friend say to me that he was too blessed to be stressed by the devil's mess. So, well, there you go. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by describing life in the coming kingdom and what that difference makes in someone's life. It's blessed. It's happy. It's human flourishing. You know, we are all searching for meaning, for purpose, and the pursuit of happiness. We want the good life, to live life to the fullest. We have advertisements all around trying to sell pleasure to us. We have politicians making promises of a better life. We have influencers trying to tell us the secret to happiness and the life hacks to get it. We have the self-help advice of our culture. But what we see in all of it is that the world overpromises and underdelivers every single time. But with Jesus, oh, he teaches us the truth in the Sermon on the Mount. He shows us the way. He gives us 
the life. As it's been said, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. And we know, as Jesus says in John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. This emptiness of experiencing life apart from Christ is what drives so many of us to the Lord, that we're searching for something deeper. And of course, we come to find it in Christ. Happiness is not ultimately found in the world, but in the word. Not in the world's wisdom, but in Christ's commands. Not in sinful pleasure, but in eternal treasure. Out of all the possibilities of words, how would the world finish this sentence? Blessed are the blank. You fill in the blank. But we know by Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, and through our own experience of finding this to be true, it's the poor in spirit. It's those who mourn. It's the meek. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's those who look to the Lord and find their identity in him, that they need him and want him and are found in him. It's theirs. The blessed is the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones who are comforted. They inherit the earth and they are satisfied. Yes, we can all say we are hashtag blessed. We are happy in Christ. We flourish and live according to his divine design. We have abundant life in Christ on earth and eternal life with Christ forevermore. And the Sermon on the Mount shows us our great need for God and to find in Christ to be our Savior. This is something we see so clearly here at the beginning of Jesus' teaching in this sermon. You want the blessed life, the happy life, one of true human flourishing? You can only find it in the Lord. So in reflection, in response, we must ask and challenge ourselves, well, why would we look anywhere else for it? Why would we try to live life apart from God in independence and self-sufficiency? Why would we try to do it on our own or in our own strength? Instead, let us look to the Lord and find in Him everything we need and everything we were designed for. Brothers, as we begin this new study on the Sermon on the Mount, let us do so with fresh hearts of renewed dependence upon the Lord, that we need Him and we are found in Him. Let us live his teaching and let us share his teaching with the world. You know, after Jesus rose from the grave and before he ascended to heaven, he commissioned his disciples. And it's known as the Great Commission in Matthew 28. The same disciples who heard his authoritative teaching on the mount were then commissioned from a mountain, from the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And what does he tell them to do? To teach others to observe all that he commanded them. I'm sure they thought back to that teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. So from the Sermon on the Mount to the Mount of Commissioning, let us hear Jesus's teaching. Let us live his teaching and let us share his teaching. Let us be astonished and amazed and see what God does in our world, in our community, in our church, and in our lives. And we will be blessed in Jesus' name.